fine design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today, we're talking about all things bankruptcy, corporate, personal, municipal, you name it. We've got all 15 chapters of the bankruptcy code available to talk about in one convenient episode, even though there are only actually nine of them. Someone didn't like even numbered chapters very much back in 1978. Joining us today from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is former United States bankruptcy judge and now partner in the restructuring practice of the international law firm Hogan Lovells, Judge Kevin Carey. Judge, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ted. It's good to be here. So let's start at the beginning. What's your origin story? How did you end up practicing bankruptcy law and aspiring to the bench? Well, fair question. And it made me think a little bit about why. Uh, There are no lawyers, or I didn't think there were any lawyers in my family. I found out later after I got into practice that there was one uh, uncle somewhere whom I'd never met. But the seed of the idea was actually planted in my head in junior high school. I forget which class it was or which teacher it was, but after doing something, she said to me, you know, I think you'd be a good lawyer. And so kind of just germinated there for a while. Um, You know, took political science in college. I'm interested in government. Uh, And so I just kind of, by the time I got to college, I think I knew I was headed to law school, assuming I could get in somewhere. And, And so you practiced as a bankruptcy lawyer after graduating law school. Um, well, I started out as a law clerk to a bankruptcy judge. Um, just kind of, again, like everything else in life, it was fortuitous. Uh, the judge who needed a law clerk, and by the way, when the code was passed, the current bankruptcy code was passed, it was the first time bankruptcy judges could hire and pay law clerks. Uh, went to the law school where I was, where, from which he'd graduated, and said, do you have someone who might be a good law clerk? And the professor I was working for said, yeah, I got a guy. And uh, ended up as a, a beginning as a law clerk. And and the when the code was passed, the 1978 Bankruptcy Act, um, was that also when the ju- when bankruptcy judges became bankruptcy judges and not bankruptcy administrators? Well, the uh, bankruptcy rules, um, which were passed during the Act, the old Bankruptcy Act was in place, began to refer to them as judges. Uh, but it took a long time for some people to stop calling them referees. Yeah. Uh, but yes, with the coming of the code and the Title 28 provisions, uh, bankruptcy judges were, were officially uh, called judges. So what, what made you want to become a bankruptcy judge? Well, it was really from my law clerk experience. You know, I loved the judge I was um, clerking for. He included me in everything he did from sitting in the courtroom with him every day to drafting the opinions that he signed when I was there to sitting in on scheduling uh, conferences and settlement conferences. Uh, he really gave me the full experience um, a law clerk uh, would really love to have. And I thought, you know, this is a job I'd love to do someday. Um, and I had a great example of how to do it. And that was the judge I was working for. Yeah, uh, I went from there to become clerk of court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania for about a year. It was never going to be a career for me. Uh, but it also gave me another different type of experience in the bankruptcy court system, which uh, ended up being very valuable to me. 
And the Eastern District of Pennsylvania is basically kind of the southeastern corner of the state. It's Philadelphia, Reading, as far north as I don't know what. Um, what's the? Yeah, what's it's the, the southeast corner. It's about nine or ten counties. And that's that, that's a pretty wide variety of things happening there because you've got a major a major metropolitan center. You have suburbs. You have farmland nestled between them. So if you're if you're clerking there, you're watching cases of all different types go by. And if you're judging there, as we'll get to, you're, you're seeing all sorts of cases come, come before you. Yes, that was a great experience. So when you decided that, that, that hanging up your, your advocacy spurs and putting on the robes was something that you wanted to do, what is the process that you went through to become a judge? Well, it's basically a self-nominating process. Um, a notice goes out from the circuit, uh, which is the appointing authority, saying there's a position open and uh, inviting people to apply. Uh, the regulations do not require any bankruptcy experience whatsoever, although the Third Circuit's uh, tradition is to appoint uh, lawyers with bankruptcy experience, um, both from the consumer and the business side. Uh, each circuit, in terms of the specific process, um, goes through, through it a little bit differently. But in the third, uh, the court appoints a merit selection panel uh, representing different stakeholders in the, in the bankruptcy system. Uh, they have interviews when they receive the applications. They make recommendations to the circuit. The circuit then decides how many uh, it wishes to interview, uh, after which it makes a tentative appointment. Um, and unlike Article Three judges, when the FBI investigates before uh, the president nominates somebody here, the circuit tentatively appoints someone and then the uh, FBI and the IRS get to conduct their investigation. In my case, uh, the first time it only took a few months. Uh, right now, given COVID, it's been taking longer for new newer judges to be appointed. Um, and I, I started out on the bench in Philadelphia and then uh, applied for a spot in Delaware after about five years or so. Uh, and that process took a lot uh, less time because they waived the FBI investigation since I'd already been on the bench. Uh, which I, I suppose the, the scary thing lurking behind that is they're keeping an eye on you while you're already on the bench. So there's less to investigate. You know, look, I always felt that um, no matter whether, whether I was on uh, using emails on the court system or uh, on the web or on the telephone, I always felt that somebody could be watching or listening. So you you mentioned Article Three and and the differences uh, in the context of investigation. So we should we should touch on that just a bit. Bankruptcy judges are not Article Three judges. They don't have lifetime tenure. Their salaries are not pr protected from from reduction during the the span of their terms. They are Article One judges, with, and they serve fourteen year terms. My my understanding is that the 14-year term came about because at the time when they, they set this structure up, they looked at the average tenure of a federal judge under Article 3, and it was 14 years, so they said, okay, well, if that's what the average judge is serving, we'll make it that. And and so here we are, and, and judges apply, and then they have to get go up for re- I was unaware that was the standard that they used. Um, there was a whole debate about the status of bankruptcy judges, there was a push initially to make them Article Three judges for constitutional reasons, uh, which turned out to be good reasons, but um, uh, the politics didn't match up and and uh, bankruptcy judges were designated as Article One judges. 
And that that difference gave rise to to one of the more bizarre and yet starstruck case bankruptcy cases of the last probably 20 years now, the Anna Nicole Smith bankruptcy, the, the Supreme Court case being Stern v. Marshall, where the Supreme Court determined that there are certain things that a bankruptcy judge simply cannot do because they're not an Article III federal judge. And, and that has led to um, a lot of gymnastics in pleadings and in court to get around that issue. Well, it's the, the, the history is long and twisted, but I'll give you the brief version of it. And that is, uh, even though bankruptcy judges were designated Article I judges, they were really given um, the, the breadth of Article Three jurisdiction. Finally, in 1982, the Supreme Court said, Congress, you can't do that. Uh, and after a couple of years, uh, the statute was amended to restructure the jurisdictional system and to designate which matters uh, that bankruptcy judges could enter final orders on and which they could only, like magistrate judges, make recommendations to the district court. So one last bit about, about you and, and your personal life before we dive into the, the always exciting topic of, of bankruptcy. You're now back in practice after 18 years on the bench. You were on the bench for the first major amendments to the bankruptcy code since 1978, the 2005 amendments, the Bankruptcy Abuse Protection, Prevention and Consumer Protection Act, which didn't, in retrospect, appear to um, end abuse or protect consumers. But sitting where you are now, back in private practice, what's it like returning to private practice after nearly two decades on the bench? Well, you know, it's it's very different, of course, but it's been tempered by the pandemic. You know, as we speak today, I've now been working from home for over a year. Uh, and at least as far as the Philadelphia office is concerned, I'm facing several more months of continuing to work at home. Now, I will tell you, the firm has me set up nicely. The uh, technology works quite well. Uh, you know, I was able to buy my uh, chamber's desk and my bench chair, which I'm now sitting in and working on. Um, so it's a comfortable existence. Uh, but I, I really desperately miss the travel and a lot of conference speaking that I did. Uh, especially for ABI, and, and I went through TMA leadership as well. Uh, but the, what I do now is very different from what I did in practice before I took the bench. Um, you know, now because of my experience as a judge, uh, much of my practice is mediations, whether it's a plan mediation or a single issue mediation. I mean, I've mediated discovery disputes. I mean, I've done the equivalent of examining documents in chambers. Uh, and, you know, quote, making rulings about whether, you know, documents claimed as privileged were appropriately so claimed. Um, I do some expert work, which I enjoy. Uh, so people, you know, look at me differently than when I was in practice. They ask me to do different things now, do a lot of consulting for my partners who have ongoing matters who um, present me with the situation and say, well, Judge, what do you think? Something I like to do. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm continuing to do some of the things, you know, kind of, uh, that I did on the bench. So you mentioned mediation. Um, there are, broadly speaking, two, two primary mediation styles. There's evaluative mediation, where the mediator kind of evaluates the case for each side and says what they think is going to happen and lets the side sort of soak in that understanding of what a neutral observer thinks of their case. And then there's the the much more kind of go with the flow facilitative mediation where 
the mediator as a neutral kind of guides the parties toward what, where they think a settlement can exist. Um, I was talking to our mutual friend, retired bankruptcy judge, Bob Gerber, who does a lot of mediation. And, and I asked him, you know, when people come to you as a mediator, are they looking for evaluative mediation? Do they want to be told what the judge is going to rule? Or are they looking for a helpful neutral to help them realize what their own best interests are? And and his response was, it's all evaluative. Everybody hires the, the retired bankruptcy judge because they want to know what the judge sitting on the case is going to do. What's your experience? It's the same. Look, I started doing mediations uh, when I was on the bench for my colleagues uh, and actually for judges outside of the district. I did a couple. Um, and I would always begin each mediation, as I still do now, and say, look, if you want a decision, you have a judge that can make a decision. I'm not here to decide the matter for you. Nobody listens. Uh, everybody wants to know at the end of the day what you think. Now, what I try to do is I do try to be facilitative uh, as much as I can uh, because I don't, want, I don't want one side or the other or many sides, if it's a multi-party mediation, as many are, you know, to think that I'm, that I'm fixed on and thinking I should make a ruling. Um, I, I, make, I make it clear to the parties that the end result here is up to them. It's their decision to make, not mine to impose, uh, as I did when I was on the bench. And I will tell you, it's much easier to impose a decision uh, than to facilitate one among warring parties. Sure. We're talking with Hogan Levels Restructuring and retired bankruptcy judge Kevin Carey on all things bankruptcy. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z disrupted. Email them to comments at disrupted.business. If you're joining the show on Facebook Live, just throw your questions in the comments. So one last question on having been a judge and now being back in practice. What was the transition going from advocate to judge for you? And, and, and what has that transition been like taking off the robes and, and going back to being an advocate? What do you do differently now that you're back advocating? Each transition was surprisingly easy. The first from advocate to judge was easy because I knew the job from the inside already. And I always felt um, it was something that I would enjoy doing and that I could do. Um, so it was easy for me. Um, now, I guess you'd have to ask those who practiced in front of me, whether how easy they thought it was, but uh, it was an easy one for me. I did learn there was more to do than, than just sit in the courtroom. Um, of course, you're working for the government, and that adds another aspect to it. Uh, leaving the bench, so deciding to leave, you know, that kind of job, which I loved uh, as much as anybody can love a job, takes a lot of thought, and, they, and the government wants, a, you know, maybe up to a year's notice if you're going to leave so they can prepare the process for replacing you. So, you know, between before making my decision, about a year before making my decision, and then for at least eight or nine months after I made the decision, it gave me enough time to begin to look forward, um, to talk to some law firms, to decide where I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. So it wasn't as difficult as you might suppose. Um, and actually, you know, the old advocacy, advocacy comes back. Um, I was not allowed to come into Delaware Bankruptcy Court for a year based on uh, judicial ethics. Uh, so uh, that year's passed, and I, rep I represented a creditor's committee in a, in a case recently. And 
I felt like I fit naturally into that role. It was, um, it was not a, a hard one for me. Do you have a favorite moment from when you were on the bench? You know, um, there isn't a single favorite moment, but let me tell you what I felt like every day. I walked into the office. I loved to see the people that I was working with, my assistant, my law clerk, uh, my courtroom deputy, and others. Uh, I loved uh, drafting opinions. I loved sitting on the bench. I loved uh, back and forth in, or in oral arguments with, with lawyers. Um, there was just there was just nothing about the job that I didn't like, except maybe reviewing fee applications. I would say that was the probably the least uh, sexy thing I did on the bench. If anything, I did was sexy on the bench. That was well, for, that was the least of it. And and for those uh, those who do not make a living charging broke companies um, hourly in order it, the one of the fundamental premises of bankruptcy is transparency. And so any professional in a bankruptcy case who is paid by the debtor, by the bankrupt company uh, or the bankrupt individual or the individual's estate has to file an application with the court disclosing what they're being, what they're billing, what they're billing for and, and, and get court permission to get paid. So everyone applies for, for payment of their fees and bankruptcy judges pretty much universally, I think, really dislike reviewing fee applications because they're long, they're tedious, they're sleep inducing. They are occasionally moments, sources of great comedy uh, and significant frustration, but nobody likes doing them. And, and by the way, those of us who are professionals in the bankruptcy field don't like, we don't like creating them. Well, and you know, the cases that we have and get in Delaware are so large and there's so many parties whose fees are paid by the estate between the debtor and the creditors committee. Uh, and maybe ad hoc groups sometimes, debtors, lenders, uh, whose fees we didn't generally review. But uh, I'd often appoint a fee auditor to actually make the first pass, give a report, uh, fight a little bit with the professionals if they had an issue um, before they came to me. And I don't think I could have done my job uh, without that kind of help. But the ultimate responsibility rests with the judge. So... Now we get to the subject of, of actually having bankruptcy. Why? Why? I mean, bankruptcy grew out of a need to or a desire to no longer throw individuals in prison for their debts. We, we, we did away with, well, I guess, Commonwealth did away with, with debtors' prisons, and then the United States carried that forward. But there is an argument to be made by people who believe in the supremacy of the free market that putting individuals aside and looking at companies that companies fail. And, and if the free market decides that a company should fail, then that's fine. And so why have something like a reorganization scheme that allows a company to restructure itself, reorganize its debts and, and begin anew? why, why allow a fresh start mechanism for a, a, a company? Well, this is not a new concept, Ted. I mean, there's been a bankruptcy law, literally since the Code of Hammurabi. Um, and it's a decision by the, uh, a policy decision uh, made by those who run the government to say it's better for the system, better for the economy, if parties are allowed to move on to the next step. 
uh, without, you know, having to suffer prison or some other ill fate as a result of not being able to pay your debts. Uh, and in one way to look at it is, okay, it's a way of allocating the pain of failure among others, among a number of, of entities rather than just on the debtor himself. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, obviously in the, the, the time of, of Hammurabi, um, there were not corporations, but that has been extended to, to corporations as well as individuals and other forms of, of corporate entity. So we have this structure where a company facing failure or that has failed has a way of allocating the pain of that failure, but also preserve jobs, preserve a going concern, give it the opportunity to realize or, or recover some value that has been lost as a going forward entity, be that as a, as a, uh, as a company that's just been sold to somebody willing to buy it and give it another go or debt holders replacing their debt with equity in the new company, any number of different schemes. But the idea is everybody takes a step back, allocates the pain according to whatever law governs that particular bankruptcy and saying, okay, let's, let's give this a fresh start and let's have another go at it. Is that basically the way the, the process works? In a nutshell, yes. Okay. So bankruptcy functions as this interesting combination of federal law and also state law. The federal law acknowledges that state law governs a lot of what happens in, a, in, in, in an individual's life, in a company's life. You know, we're, we are all subject to contracts. Contracts are beings, of, they're creatures of state law. And so as a bankruptcy judge, you're constantly having to consider what's happening under state law as it applies to the constituents in a given bankruptcy case, both an individual consumer bankruptcy or a company. Um, how, how does that complexity play out? Well, it's actually one of the, the things I enjoyed most about being a judge. Uh, it's a challenge uh, because you're dealing with laws of different states, sometimes foreign laws, um, in addition to the bankruptcy law. And I think uh, people outside of the bankruptcy system don't, don't realize, even though federal courts and the bankruptcy courts are courts of limited jurisdiction, the number of types of matters uh, that they have to encounter uh, seems nearly limitless, uh, including, you know, looking at state contract rights. Uh, of course, with all the energy cases, looking into that field of law, which is very complicated and differs dramatically from state to state. Um, but it's something that you do because you're presented with situations that even though you're in a bankruptcy, because property rights generally are, are decided under state law, uh, the bankruptcy judge spends as much time um, addressing those rights as uh, trying to interpret the bankruptcy code itself. So within a bankruptcy case, um, you talked about fee applications. Fee applications, of course, are a means of transparency and oversight of the process. Um, and there are a number of other means of doing that. But one of the things that a bankruptcy case and therefore a bankruptcy court acts as is a forum to collect all of the respective problems of a given company or the the parties with whom an individual who is in bankruptcy has had problems with. It, it becomes a convenient forum to kind of dump all of the grievances related to that company or that person 
into that one bucket and have the parties of the case sort through it, the judge adjudicate it all, and at the end, ideally, kind of come out with fewer problems and a path forward. But I imagine that makes for some incredibly messy starts to cases. Well, it does, actually. And it actually starts a long time, usually, before the bankruptcy is filed. If you take a company, for example, that might be in distress, it's inevitably been suffering the distress uh, for an extended period of time before it actually gets to the bankruptcy. Hopefully, it uses some of that pre-bankruptcy time to plan not only how to enter the bankruptcy, but how to exit it as well. Uh, but yeah, so you when on the first when you have first day hearings, which are generally heard within a day or two of the filing, um, in which the debtor requests relief, which is designed to keep the business running without disruption, um, you're faced with parties who are tired and exhausted and stressed from dealing with um, the stress of having to deal with creditors, having to deal with covenant defaults, having to deal with liquidity issues. Um, and then this is just another phase of um, the challenge that the parties will go through. And after they leave bankruptcy, there'll be more challenges that they have to go through. So one way to look at bankruptcy, it's just a stop along a timeline, uh, along a continuum, uh, which the bankruptcy court is just a part of. And one of the challenges for the bankruptcy judge initially is to try to figure out what's going on, uh, what has gone on, what the parties need, and how to help them exit the bankruptcy. One of the things, um, one of the things you occasionally hear mentioned is judicial temperament. And I've, I've been in, I've been in hearings in, in courts, bankruptcy courts where, you know, you had 30 parties lined up waiting for their turn because it was a, a cattle call. It was a long docket with 20 or 30 different cases. And, Every single party got yelled at by the judge, literally yelled at just for reasons because it was their turn and there was a different thing to yell at for each party. Um, and then there are judges who just with the simple lift of an eyebrow, the, the bench knows, oh, they're, they're having trouble with what I'm talking about. Does temperament, and we'll come back to this after the break, but does temperament affect how a case gets off the ground? Oh, it, it affects lots of things. Um, look, the bankruptcy judge has to have the basic skill, intellectual ability to meet the challenging issues that a case may present. But temperament is equally as important. Um, I, I explained to new judges, I did so again recently, um, you know, your courtroom is like, like a living room. You know, when you go to other people's living rooms, uh, each living room has a different feel. And it's up to you to create the kind of atmosphere you'd like to have in your courtroom. Uh, and some judges are, as you describe, and I, you know, it's terrible for a judge to be that way. Um, but it's better to be, you know, it's better to, to be more even-tempered, polite to everybody, patient, um, but firm when that's called for. Well, we've got just a couple of seconds before our break, so... We're talking with attorney and retired bankruptcy judge Kevin Carey about all things bankruptcy. Stick around while we avoid bankruptcy ourselves by expect accepting money from our sponsors in exchange for the commercial messages you're about to hear. When we return, about judicial temperament, being a judge, bankruptcy cases, and why being broke is expensive.
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. If you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. We're talking with retired bankruptcy judge Kevin Carey. Judge, I've heard bankruptcy described as an invitation for parties to negotiate. If if the law is what the law is, why is bankruptcy considered an invitation an invitation to negotiate? What is there to negotiate if the law is black and white? Well, in the um, textbook I use when I teach um, a general bankruptcy course, uh, written by Warren and Westbrook, yes, the Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, she says exactly that, that a bankruptcy is an invitation to a negotiation. Um, <clears throat> but why are they all different? You know, I was asked in one of my first speaking engagements after taking the bench, it's a group of mortgage bankers. They said, Your Honor, why, when I have a case in one district, the same issue is decided differently in another? Um, well, there are a couple different answers to that. One is, look, there are 350 bankruptcy judges. They're individuals. Um, they make their own decisions. They're governed by circuit law, which matters. There are 12 circuits uh, which govern what trial judges can do or not do. 
And, you know, cultures differ. I mean, think about it. You can get in your car and travel, you know, half a day and be in a place um, where the culture is completely different from the one that you just left. Um, so I guess the short way, short way of answering that is that there's room for disagreement about different things, even though it's federal law and supposed to be uniform. That, that the, the culture, the culture point that you just raised is fascinating, but also potentially horrifying because if, for example, a lender is, is going to lend under specific terms and those are what we would call the lenders bargained for rights under the contract that gives rise to the loan, what should it, they're going to, they're going to look at it and say, what should it matter that the party that I'm lending to is in Pennsylvania versus Indiana? And if the company happens to move to Indiana and file bankruptcy in Indiana, given the same facts, why, why, why they would say is, is the outcome going to be different in Indiana? And I suppose there, the answer is you have different circuit law. You have different precedent that applies to the bankruptcy court. But, but that, is, that could just as easily be the same if we're talking about moving from Philadelphia to Reading, Pennsylvania, which is about a 90-minute drive, not moving halfway across the country. Well, in theory, it shouldn't matter, Ted. But let me give you an example. Um, in Chapter 13, uh, say in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania and, and many other districts, a, a Chapter 13 debtor can propose a plan that offers no payments to unsecured creditors. Yet there are districts, uh, mainly in the South, which will not allow that. They'll say you have to make some effort to repay creditors to get, to get confirmation of a Chapter 13 plan. And there's nothing in the bankruptcy code that makes that distinction. Right. And, and for those who do not live in bankruptcy, like the judge and I, um, individuals, generally speaking, there are exceptions, but they generally fall into one of two types of bankruptcies. A Chapter 7, uh, which gives the, the debtor a fresh start, a, a full discharge from their debts uh, shortly into the case. And then a Chapter 13, which a debtor is required to do if they have too, many, too much income, for example, or, or, or more assets than a Chapter 7 allows which requires that a debtor pay to creditors all of their excess monthly income, which is determined using a legal formula for five years. And so if, for example, but at the end of the day, what a bankruptcy plan, which exists in chapter 13, as well as chapter 12 and chapter 11 and chapter nine means is whatever the court says it means. And a plan is confirmable if a court is willing to confirm it. So, this is an example where the law is silent on the issue, but, but practice in different regions has, has diverged such that some regions will find a no payment plan acceptable and some won't. So the bankruptcy bar, the, the, the attorneys who practice bankruptcy, they are generally speaking a close knit group in from community to a community to community, even nationally, the bankruptcy bars is pretty close knit. But, you know, certainly the Philadelphia bankruptcy bar or the Reno, Nevada bankruptcy bar, or the Wilmington, Delaware bankruptcy bar, they're all very close knit groups. Everybody knows everybody. They've been practicing with each other. New members are welcomed in and everyone sort of gets to know how everyone works. Yeah. So if you don't like that group of professionals, you might refer to them as the bankruptcy gang. Uh, <laughs> if you do like that set of professionals, you might refer to them as the insolvency community. Yes. Um, but there are occasionally people who are bomb throwers, 
that, you know, they're, they're not the type to have a friendly phone call and try to work something out. They're there for the fight. They, they, they're disruptors. What does that look like from the bench? Well, answer that a couple ways. First of all, in, in the U.S., bankruptcy is a judicial process, unlike in some other jurisdictions around the world where it's more administrative than judicial. Um, it's also a very accessible forum. So it's an, easy, it's an easy forum for a party to get into and participate in and be heard. Uh, and, and the right, uh, rights to be heard are quite expansive in a bankruptcy. So, yes, it's actually very easy for a single creditor, even in a large Chapter 11 case, um, to be a disruptive factor uh, in the administration of the case. From the judge's standpoint, the point is to try to um, give the right to be heard to a party who has the right to be heard, but to keep the case moving and to not let it be distracted from the course of finding you know, an exit that's agreeable to most of the stakeholders. Um, let me put it another way. As a judge, I tried to decide those issues that needed to be decided to move the case along. I tried to, not to decide those issues that would um, delay the case, pull it to the side, cost the estate and others money, and uh, unnecessarily consume judicial time um, so that uh, we could get to the end uh, as efficiently as possible. And, and believe me, judges get lots of invitations to make decisions. I tell new judges this. It's not necessary to accept every invitation. Which, which we, we in practice refer to as punting. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier uh, international bankruptcy. How does, how does the U.S. bankruptcy scheme compare to foreign bankruptcy schemes? You know, um, it's changing. Uh, when I was in TMA leadership and traveled around the world to different TMA chapters, I found that everyone knew about Chapter 11, even if their own insolvency system was very different from ours. Uh, what's been happening over the last three, four years is that uh, foreign insolvency um, schemes are now moving to add many provisions that we have in Chapter 11, and probably one of the most uh, important developments was the passage in the EU of an insolvency directive, which required within a given period of time that all EU members add chapter 11 like provisions uh, to their insolvency uh, systems. And it includes, you know, what we call the automatic stay in foreign jurisdictions. It's often called a moratorium uh, assumption and rejection of contracts or something like that has been added being able to confirm a plan over the objection of creditors, cram downs, for example. Um, so lots of um, features, uh, oh, debtor in possession financing are now being added uh, to foreign insolvency schemes, particularly in Europe, but also in Asia. So that, that's, a, that's a big change. Um, you know, European insolvency has for a very long time simply been a means by which a company's assets could be liquidated. And, and, and their laws are very different than our laws here, where, where officers and directors of a company have a duty to file for insolvency if it looks like the company is, is going to be unable to pay its debts 
whereas U.S. jurisprudence and, and and case law has has gone the other way. It it, it allows for the, the 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 management's best efforts to try and save the company. And but, sometimes the failure of directors to file in time uh, results in personal liability for yeah. um, having failed to do so. Um, Mexico has a provision of that kind. Other other places in Europe do as well. So in in comparing the European schemes to the U.S. schemes, you know, Chapter Seven is a liquidation. Chapter Eleven is a reorganization. It allows the business to continue running and and to be in possession of its assets. Uh, there is no trustee appointed. The the management stays. The board of directors stays, and the company is able to operate. So for Europe to be looking at a more Chapter 11-like structure where the debtor remains in possession, no trustee is appointed over the debtor's assets, that they can borrow money, a bankrupt company being allowed to borrow money outside of the United States um, was unheard of until comparatively recently. Yeah, India is so, making those changes now to its business. That's interesting. Well, they're actually talking about adding a prepack feature. So being able to walk into a bankruptcy court with a plan in hand that has been approved by creditors and, and, and go in and out in a short period of time. Yes. Well, that's certainly a quick way to save a lot of money because running a Chapter 11 case is not inexpensive. No, it's become terribly expensive. Um, you know, and I, I routinely in some of the bigger cases uh, ended up having to approve hundreds of millions of dollars in, in professional fees. Uh, which is which is one reason why when Congress last year, the year before, um, I guess early last year it went to effect, passed a, a an amendment to Chapter 11, which made a more streamlined process for small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, which particularly given the pandemic, I think has been a good innovation in the bankruptcy code, speeds up Chapter 11 uh, processes and costs less for the company. And that was the Small Business Reorganization Act passed in twenty in August of twenty nineteen, or signed into law in August of twenty nineteen. Yes, um, and and was a recommendation among a lot of recommendations by an organization that you mentioned earlier, the American Bankruptcy Institute. Um, so there are a lot of misconceptions about bankruptcy. One of them is that some a debtor, be it a company debtor or, or an individual debtor, is completely debt free after a bankruptcy or, or, or what's the reality there? Well, um, in an individual chapter 11, um, many times they're what are called no asset cases. That is any assets that the debtor has may be exempt under either federal or state law um, and then gets a discharge and, and may very well leave that behind. But there are exceptions. I mean, one of the biggest problems now facing uh, individual debtors is uh, student loans, which are in theory uh, dischargeable, but in practice, given how the case law has developed, almost impossible to do. So there's been a move afoot in Congress for many years, unsuccessful so far, to amend the bankruptcy code to make it easier to discharge student loan debt, which uh, can run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and there are other kinds of debt, like some tax debt and other things, which which uh, cannot be discharged uh, unless they're very old or o older than a certain uh, age um, and, and other debts as well. Uh, but generally, Chapter 7 does and can, in most instances, free the debtor to start again. In a Chapter 11, um, in effect, the company is relieved of past liabilities if, number one, 
as you mentioned earlier, the balance sheet is restructured so that creditors um, trade their debt for equity. Uh, and in a case in which the company is sold, uh, the old entity is relieved of its um, burdens uh, and goes quietly away while the buyer takes over, hopefully, what's a going concern um, and keeping jobs in place. And it, it will shoulder whatever ongoing liabilities the company may have to address. Okay. If you've joined us late, we're talking with Hogan Lovell's restructuring attorney and retired bankruptcy judge, Kevin Carey, on all things bankruptcy. If you have questions, tweet them to us at, at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. If you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments. So, Judge, what do you most appreciate about the bankruptcy system? Well, when I sat in Philadelphia, most of my docket, almost all the docket was consumer-oriented. Um, in, in Delaware, of course, uh, most of the docket are large, complex Chapter 11 proceedings. I would say the U.S. bankruptcy law, in either case, is a pretty good job of deciding how, as we discussed earlier, the pains to be allocated in order to let either an individual or a company uh, carry on. I would say in a Chapter 11, the Chapter 11, the U.S. Chapter 11, and I'm trying not to be a homer on this, U.S. Chapter 11, I think, is probably still the best restructuring uh, uh, framework uh, in the world. Now, other jurisdictions are catching up that way, uh, I think, by adding some Chapter 11-like provisions to their laws. But uh, I think the U.S. got it right. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean there aren't things that can and should be fixed. Um, but it's a pretty good system as systems go. So let's flip the coin over. What do you think most needs to change about the bankruptcy system and why? Well, with respect to the the business end of things, I would say the expense. Um, you know, a company can get bogged down if there are parties who are at war who just can't come to an agreement about how to allocate the estate's value um, and to figure out a consensual exit to the Chapter 11. Uh, the cost of that is uh, staggering sometimes. That's why in, in 11s, in Delaware anyway, we saw many more what I would call sale cases, that is companies, after having conducted a pre-bankruptcy marketing process and redoing it after the filing, end up selling virtually all their assets, uh, usually in an auction-type setting. Um, so there, there were very few, while I was on the bench in the later years, um, actual corporate reorganizations. Um, they were either sale cases or sometimes balance sheet restructurings. On the individual side, I think the amendments that you referred to, uh, which we call BAPSIPA, uh, w w were just terrible, both for individuals and for business. Um, I think if those amendments were backed out, uh, the world would be a better place. So I want to talk a little bit about diversity in the bankruptcy and restructuring profession. There was a time when bankruptcy was the field of law where people went to practice when those people were unacceptable or unhirable by the white shoe law firms. And these would be people of un, what were at the time undesirable ethnicities, uh, women, people of color, and the bankruptcy profession was considered to be the place where people who, who didn't fit in with air quotes around fit in went to go. But even still, it is overwhelmingly a white 
male practice. When, when did bankruptcy practice become more mainstream and more acceptable to, to the powerhouse firms? And, and I want to talk about how we get more people of color and, and more gender diversity into the bankruptcy practice. How do you get them? How do you keep them? Yeah, the, the first question is easier to answer. The second one more difficult. But it happened. Um, bankruptcy became more respectable, if you want to put it that way, as a practice area, especially of interest to the larger firms uh, with the advent of the present bankruptcy code. Uh, before 1979, bankruptcy had been handled largely by smaller boutique-type firms um, that uh, were part of, I guess, what you might call the bankruptcy gang. Uh, and large firms, you're right, turned up their noses at it. But when the code was passed, they took another look at the bankruptcy law and began to realize that there was a lot of money in bankruptcy for the professionals who were engaged um, and paid by the estate, in large part because the standard for judging the allowance of fees changed from what was generally called an economy standard to a market standard. So lawyers began to know that they could charge market rates in a bankruptcy and be paid them. So that brought the big firms in. Um, look, because of <clears throat> many of the developments politically and socially over the last year, uh, many firms, including my own, um, have started new initiatives in diversity and inclusion. Um, look, why, why the practice is largely male? I think one reason is it's crisis-oriented, right? Uh, and you have to be ready at the drop of a hat. Um, and since men can't have give birth to children, women must, and they have other uh, obligations that are hard to fulfill uh, in crisis situations. You can't run and leave a child alone. Um, and men haven't yet stepped into the role of helping enough to allow women to be able to do that, although there's more of it now than there used to be. Uh, but you know, a lot of people aren't necessarily attracted to a crisis-based type of practice. Um, look, I think diversity is an issue in, in many practice areas. It certainly is in ours. I know the courts, the federal courts, uh, actually have, uh, with the bankruptcy courts, have a system now, a program now in place where they uh, have programs annually to try to convince uh, lawyers or young lawyers or lawyers-to-be that they should look for getting to the bench because um, I think the bench has that same kind of problem. But the firms simply have to, I'll take give an example of what our firm is doing. We have uh, a number of recruiters that we work for and we say, bring us diverse candidates. And if you don't bring us diverse candidates, we won't work with you. Um, we make sure now that when we pitch clients, we include uh, a diverse team. When we have um, uh, diverse associates, Partners are encouraged uh, and expected to include diverse candidates in the, in the assignments that they give and the teams that they build uh, to serve as clients. So there are positive things that can and should and will be done, um, I think, by many firms, including ours, uh, to, to increase diversity. But it takes a positive effort. You can't just sit back and say, well, we don't object to having uh, a diverse or inclusive culture, but unless you go out and make it, it won't happen. You have to actually work hard at it to make it happen. Right. Well, and, and 
you know, there are, there are a couple of problems with diversity. First is what comes out of the bottom of the funnel is entirely dependent on what goes in at the top of the funnel. So, you know, we need, there, there needs to be a concerted effort among law schools to, to, to recruit with diversity and with intentionality. Um, You teach a bankruptcy class in the LLM program at St. John's. I do. Um, do you have, has the composition of your classes changed appreciably over the last 10 years? It's more diverse now than it was before. Um, but look, we're talking about New York, uh, which tends to be a more diverse place. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I teach at the Queens campus, not at Manhattan. Uh, but yeah, th- there's diversity now and it's welcome and it's good. And, and, and the other part is we need to retrain ourselves because you know, law is very much a, an apprenticeship type of practice. You know, you, you work with a, a junior person works with a senior person, senior people tend to give work to people who remind them of themselves. And so there, there needs to be a concerted effort of breaking that cycle to, to develop diverse attorneys. There does, there absolutely does. And it takes an effort, a conscious effort and a commitment uh, to do that. Okay. Well, that's going to be the last word. Judge, thank you so much for joining us today. Judge Kevin Carey is a partner in the business restructuring and insolvency practice of global law firm Hogan Lovells. Hogan Lovells is on Twitter as at Hogan Lovells with two L's. Well, I guess three L's actually. Links to the judge's website and social media are on this show's website under this episode's show notes. Join us next time as we explore the difficulties of post-service economic life for veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces. From an indifferent bankruptcy code to mounting medical bills in the face of an unwavering bureaucracy, we in America may talk about supporting the troops, but by and large, pretty bad at doing it, and we can do better. Next time on Business Disrupted, we're going to talk to people who are helping us do better. Join our guests, including a National Guard Battalion commander who is also a practicing bankruptcy lawyer, a financial distress scholar who has helped thousands of veteran families navigate financial distress, and former Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Assistant Director Holly Petraeus. And if Ms. Petraeus' name sounds familiar, that's because it should. Join us next time for Wounding Warriors. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. 380ccs of two-wheeled transportation by Vespa. Our theme song and original music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.